Welcome to Black Empowerment Radio, where we are dedicated to unifying, organizing, and taking action to establish and advance our economic interest within the Black community. Our radio show podcast will be uploaded every Wednesday and Thursday via SoundCloud and YouTube. Please like, share, and subscribe to our Facebook, YouTube, and SoundCloud channels. Now, introducing your humble host, Mark. How you doing, brother? Hey, how's it going? How's it going? So, on today's show, we're going to be talking about um, the the prison industrial complex and how that's the new form of slavery. Uh, Today, I'm going to have a guest via telephone, my man King Sui Shabazz. How you doing today? I'm doing real good, man. Good, good, good. So... Basically, for for all the listeners that may be a little younger or um, some older ones who may not necessarily be in the know-how about the government and um, their history with basically leasing out uh, prisoners, um, prison labor in the United States has its roots in slavery. So mm-hmm. after, after the Civil War, a system of leasing out prisoners was introduced in order to essentially legalize uh, the slave trade still. Um, Exactly. We know freed slaves were arrested and convicted for the smallest infractions of the law that was geared towards black people from the beginning. Um, There were were basically laws imposed on black people um, that... Uh, that began in 1865 and 1866 that were known as the Black Codes. Uh, these codes kept black people from... It, it was they, they criminalized black people for learning to read, uh, for assembling, assembling together, bearing arms, just basically anything that was um, afforded to a white person uh, via the Constitution. Uh, those were laws that black people were breaking during those times. So um, these laws essentially compelled black people um, to be imprisoned and to work off debt um, in, in mines, and uh, they, they forced them to build railroads and pick cotton and just things of that nature. They criminalized black people, and that was a, a avenue for them to get them to work for free. And um, they were being leased out to different companies and corporations as a form of cheap labor. I don't know if people young enough, uh, young they, they may be too young to remember, um, but Ronald Reagan and George Bush Sr. Uh, basically implemented a, a a program it was a way of of cutting the federal workforce um so the justice department ended up contracting uh private prison corporations mm-hmm. it originally started the the point of it was to originally was to um imprison incarcerate undocumented workers and high uh security risk inmates but it it, it really hit its pinnacle under uh, Clinton. And that's another thing. Uh, People always refer to Bill Clinton as our first black president when in all actuality, 
you know, he was the one who implemented the, the three-strike law. Um, as, as a result of that being an incentive uh, to arrest people, the poorest and most disenfranchised people, which is which is us, essentially, always get railroaded within that system. So people were starting to be convicted of nonviolent crimes and sentenced to lengthy prison sentences for possessions, uh, possession of like, you know, uh, five grams of, of crack cocaine. They were getting, you know, a five-year sentence uh, for five grams of, of crack when it takes, wow. you know, 500 grams of the powder form of, of cocaine to get that same five-year sentence. So they were... These were these were basically tactics that the government was used was were using to essentially arrest, convict, and and, and get people in prison, and they were uh, systematically doing this, and um, they were they were leasing out these inmates to privatized prisons. Um, so so yeah, uh out of let me see, I guess thirty seven of the thirty seven states in the United States, I believe they it, it's legal for them to contract out prison labor. So mm-hmm. you know, that's 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 more than half the states that implement this, this private prison. Uh, practice. So, I mean, what is your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's vile. Yeah, from my sources, it's like yeah, thirty-seven states are uh, um, legally licensed to operate private prisons, and it's about thirteen states that don't have them. Right. And private mm-hmm. prisons, the industry is worth over seventy billion dollars conservatively. You know, mm-hmm. when we talk about like mass incarcerations. We tend to um, trace it back to the Reagan era, but when we look at some of the laws and some of the racist mandates that was opposed to the society, we trace it all the way back to like Nixon. Mm-hmm. And Nixon, he declared the war on drugs, and the war on drugs had its origin in like a subtle motive, and really didn't have anything to do with any concern over harmful drugs. Like, the drug war was like a I think it was officially declared on like uh, June 17th on the 1971, and he declared it to be like the number one, like public enemy number one, mm-hmm. which is real ironic because in that time ta- in that time frame, there was a lot of racial tension, injustice, civil strife, you know, a lot of anti-Vietnam protests going on. So the Black just, Panthers, mm-hmm. Black Panthers. So it's just ironic that he would say that the drugs would be uh, public enemy number one when we had a lot of things disturbing and shaking the country at that time. And it was really just started to um, to imprison black people and and young voters at the time. Mm. Yeah, I've seen a a study that said um, black men, uh, every one out of three black men would be in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's likely to be in prison 
at some point in time in their life. And every one out of 18 black women versus our counterparts is one in 17 white men that has a likelihood of being incarcerated at some point in time in their life. And a one out of um, 111 with white women. So we kind of see this imbalance uh, with, with black people in this country. And we predominantly, I think it's something like 65% of uh, black people who are incarcerated in the United States are, inc- are, are incarcerated for um, nonviolent drug charges. Exactly. So. I mean, the majority of the prison population is, in fact, filled up with nonviolent drug offenders, which right. is unconstitutional because it's a victimless crime. So the prisons is filled up with people that's really not even supposed to be there. People locked up for victimless crimes, uh, victimless drug offenses. And, yeah, they've been doing this for years, since the 80s, really, like since the 70s and the 80s, because under Ronald Reagan was a continuation of what Richard Nixon had started. And it was really wasn't any rise in the crime, but it was an induced fear that was pretty much induced by the media. The media was pretty much reporting on crime more, and it really wasn't that crime was getting any more rapid. It was really shareholder primacy. They knew that when they showed violence on TV, what they learned from Hollywood, when they showed violence, when they report more violence, that it draws a a large audience, and it was all about ratings and and, and viewings, and it was about ratings. So they were... um, when they report on violent crimes, they would sensationalize it. They'll talk about it years after. Like we remember how long they was talking about the OJ system trial. I mean, decades. They still talking about that. I just seen a documentary about that last week. They still talk about John Benet Ramsey's. So they sensationalize murder stories and uh, crimes. And the byproduct is that the people start to believe that crime is rampant and is more crime when really crime has been at a stable level for the past 40 years. And we don't understand why the prison populations are increasing. We're talking like 16-fold since the 80s. In the 80s, the prison population was around 150,000 to 200,000. Today, we're talking about close to 3 million. So, Mm -hmm. and and, and the crime wave hasn't gone up. It just fluctuates a little bit in categories, but it hasn't been any alarming uprising in crime in, in years. The most violent times we had in America was during, like, the 20s, the born 20s, when the mafia was, like, bootlegging liquor and stuff. And then, you know, we had the civil rights in the 50s. But after the civil rights era and all that, and we haven't been having, like, violent crimes like that in America. It's just been induced by the media. And then when, when the citizens, in return, they get preconditioned by the media, they go to um, voters' booths and they vote for tough-on-crime politicians. Mm -hmm. um, So it's kind of like that problem-reaction-solution thing. You know, they create the problem, they come up with the reaction and the solution. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so, like, a lot of people thought that when... uh, 
when they were in, implementing the three strike law, that they were going to be basically going after hardened criminals, hardened violent criminals who just were repeat <laughs> offenders. So you know, a lot of people went out and, and they voted thinking they were going to get uh, some of the serial killers, some of the uh-huh. uh, the, the gang bangers that were shooting up mm. uh, the streets at night, um, some of the, the the violent assault and robbery. Uh, mm. Some of the people that commit those type of crimes, but in all actuality, there's more non-violent offenders that are are given uh, three strike sentences, which is uh, 25 to life, uh, yeah. than than actual ones who commit hard and hard crime, like who commit murders yeah. and assaults. Um, California. Uh, Mm-hmm. I read, it was like a statistics that I uh, statistics that I read. It said like three hundred and twenty-seven uh, three strike inmates, uh, people who've been essentially arrested for uh, the three strike law. Were three hundred and twenty-seven of them was was arrested for petty theft. It was like thirty-five hundred of them was non-violent, non-serious crime, and. Um, thirteen hundred of them were nonviolent drug offenses. So I, I read a story. A guy got arrested for he was facing like twenty five years based off the three strike law because he stole a pack of donuts. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I, I was just about to talk about that story. I thought it was yeah. a candy bar, a candy bar or something. But yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, a guy got sentenced about twenty five years for mm-hmm. stealing some something like a candy bar, some donuts or something like. And what's interesting is, you know, they they are sentencing these people for these minor offenses and infractions to the point that they're filling up the prisons so much that the people that's doing the violence, there ain't no room for them no more. So they get they get sentenced, they get out, let out early. The people that need to be in prison for violent, violent crimes, they get let out early because the people uh, that's making the minor offenses, they're filling up the prisons. Right, right. The violent offenders right. get out, they get out earlier. And also, the, the prisons are so full now that they're they're importing inmates with longer sentences to other privatized jails. So people who have extended sentences, they basically build a, a town. It could be a a town that's down in the dumps, and they'll build a prison there and transfer inmates out to that county or, or that state and build up a whole economy off of it. And exactly. it's back, the, the crazy thing about it is it's backed by investors like Merrill Lynch, uh, mm-hmm. American Express, Allstate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and according to, to the, um, the article that I was reading, the operation was scattered all over rural Texas. So, it's a big business, man, and that's why I always stress the importance of understanding white supremacy, withstanding and maintaining our own community, because this is a clear example of white supremacists doing that. They're taking these decrepit counties or town or rural areas, and they'll build, they're building prisons, and they're employing everybody in the town, at the prison, 
and and they doing it all off the back of they building a whole economy off the back of our suffering and and, and our misery. Exactly, because the whole, they say um, this whole country's economy is kind of based off these mutual funds and these mutual funds and the investments and these prison corporations like CCA, Correction Corporations of America, and, and mm-hmm. GEO, and they pretty much make profit off crime, but they socially engineer crime to happen. It's not that crime actually goes up, it's that different changes to um, drug sentences and drug laws and things that wasn't really illegal years ago like prior to the 70s, was made illegal during the 70s and 80s. So mm-hmm. it's, crime hasn't went up. It's just that the, law, the laws changed, and now they're just locking people up from minor drug offenses. And, like, they say black people are, like, 20, 22 times more likely to get sentences long mm-hmm. more than their um, white counterpart. Absolutely, it, absolutely. And when we talk about, like, the money that's being made off the prison industry, I mean, it's really like a, a multi-billion-dollar industry because they're making money from everything from the cheap labor. A lot of things that's being, uh, like, products that we begin is, like, made by prison laborers. You know, we already know, like, the license pictures on cars and certain electronics and clothing and all this, the telephone companies making money. It, it, it's, it's a very high money business and it's really rooted and it's like the politicians back in the 70s was mad about the um uprising in the 60s so the war on drugs was pretty much a backlash a white backlash against the black the blacks that was uprising in the 60s so it so war on drugs is definitely rooted in, in um it's definitely rooted in racism yeah, without a doubt. And, and basically, to touch back to what you were saying about how all these uh, companies are, are contracting out these inmates, a lot of people don't know that, uh, just to, to name a few, uh, corporations or companies that use prison labor, some of them are uh, Starbucks, Walmart, mm-hmm. Penney, mm-hmm. um, uh who else? Um, just, just a bunch of them, just the, the name of a, a few, uh, even American Airlines, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of these people are exploiting, the, like I said, the misery of or, or the disenfranchisement of black people. Um, you even look at these, these people actually lobby in Washington, D.C. to get these laws passed and, and uh, to, to build these private prisons to, to, to keep those institutions um, open. I mean, they even have something called a rent a cell, where Wow, you got to like me on that. I ain't heard of that. Rent a cell. Rent a cell, yeah. After the law um, was signed by Bill Clinton in 96, it was ending... Uh, a court supervision, and it was a decision caused. Basically, it was due to overcrowded and, and violent conditions in federal prisons. Um, private prison corporations in Texas began to contact other state 
whose prisons were overcrowded, offering rent-a-cell services in the CCA prisons located in, in small towns in Texas. So the commission for rent-a-cell salesmen is like $2.50 to $5.50 per day. And wow. The county gets a dollar fifty for each prisoner. So, um, you know, if 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 a state prison is over packed, then you know there's. I always wanted to really pinpoint like where they getting the money to um, build these prisons. I was reading an article talking about how they'd be like diverting funds out of like social programs, like education or. Mm-hmm. Uh, rehabs or, you know, various social programs, and they, like, divert the funds out of these social programs to fund these prisons and, you know, the construction and the maintenance of them and appointing the staff and all that. But the interesting thing about it is the money, the programs that they divert and the money out of is programs that have been proven to actually reduce crime, like education, uh, shelters, uh AA, you know, alcohol anonymous, and various other programs like mental health programs, and 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 they divert these money out these programs. So essentially, they that's social engineering. They actually creating the criminals because they taking as you 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 de-educate a demographic, then essentially essentially you creating criminals. So when they taking them, yeah. So it's perpetual. So that that kind of ties in with the school, the jail pipeline. And they take away from a lot of educational programs and just social programs in general, like, and they divert, they, that's where a lot, that's where they get a lot of this money from to, to build these prisons with. And there's plenty of sources to back that up too. But and I just found that interesting because that ties into that school to jail pipeline thing. Right, right. Are, are the crime in, in our community, I'm not saying there is no, no black people that don't commit crime or, or, or there aren't black people who deserve to be in prison because we have nuts and psychos in, in every race. Um, but our crime is mainly uh, due to economic um, deprivation. Exactly. You know I mean? That's why we, that's why we mm-hmm. are the highest uh, group of people that are incarcerated for uh, drug-related crimes. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to kind of touch on some different ways that we as black people can try to get around this this trap, so to speak, that's planted out here for us. I mean, do you have any ideas on uh, some things we can do to essentially uh, avoid this this systematic uh, oppression? Well, awareness, because uh, we've got to become aware of the whole schematics and mechanics of, of what they've been using against us. So, of course, knowledge. It's cliche as that may sound, but <laughs> knowledge. we we, we got to understand what, what's going on because, like, our people being locked up in jail on a mass level being mainly a direct result of the war on drugs, we we, we got to really look into that because we we I mean it's kind of like common knowledge we know now that Reagan, through the scandal, was actually bringing the drugs over here. So that yeah. kind of just that always kind of just gets me right there how millions of black people are locked up in prison for drugs when 
it was the government that brought them over here. Okay. As far as it, we have a lot of repairing to do. I mean, yeah, and, and part of it's that almost overwhelming. Like, like a, a lot of people always make the case for reparations uh, from slave for slavery, but I think yeah. we should have reparations for um, sure. the false imprisonment and the um, the unjust. Exactly. Uh, Boy, that'd be an economic disaster for them. That'd be an economic disaster. That'd be, mm-hmm. you know, if they had to pay us back for every wrong they did, I mean, that might be one of the things they're scared of. <laughs> that would, that yeah, would I mean, this whole you, you have to think about all the all the fathers that were incarcerated that didn't get a chance to uh, uh, mentor their children to. Uh, be there financially for their children, emotionally for their children. Um, and, and some of the uncles, I mean, the uncles, just men, period. You know, yeah. white, one of the white supremacist talking points has always been, um, you know, we, we got to have a better a better uh, set of values or a better morale or, or take care of our uh, family. and But, it's hard to do that when you are mass incarcerating our fathers, our uncles, our brothers, our sisters. I mean, just the the, uh, the recent events that took place this week with the killing of uh, uh, Kareem Gaines, we're seeing that now. And they're, they're targeting our women. Yeah. So uh-huh. one of the one yeah. of the things that I wanted to touch on as a, a, a potential solution to this issue is. Having an economic base, I can't stress that enough. A lot of, a lot of, uh, you, you know, you and I uh, both were young men at one point in time. So we know the trouble that we used to get into. We know we're yeah. out here in the streets, and just having that economic base within the community, having people that you know that you can go to for employment, so you don't have to go to uh, uh, selling weed or, or selling crack yeah. or selling pills. Having that, having that, uh, that leader, that that role model in the community that can um, that can help you through, you know, help you help you through those times, show you the ropes, show you how to navigate um, this this system. Because you know, everybody thinks that they're going to be a millionaire overnight. Everybody thinks that you know they they they, they end to things for a quick buck. But if you have an older guy to say, listen, you can work for me, but you need to understand how to have your own. You know, you can come work at my my uh, my cleaners, but I'm gonna show you how to run your own cleaners, or I'm gonna show you how to run a delivery service. So I'm gonna, you know, it, it keeps kids occupied. It helps them financially, because that's the only reason that we really in the streets is because we're trying to get some type of monetary gain out of it. It's not fun for us. I know plenty of people who hustle, and it's not fun for them. You know what I mean? It's it's they got caught up while they were younger, and that's just what they kind of been boxed into. They've been boxed into a corner because of some mistakes that they made. Now, on the other hand, you have a, a, a fifteen or sixteen year old white kid. He smokes some pot. He snorts some lines. He get arrested. He get pulled over for a DUI or whatever. The judge is not as harsh on him as he is a black youth. Mm-hmm. We, we're criminalized from the beginning. 
Yeah. So that guy, that white kid, his family got money for a lawyer. So they're going to get those charges dismissed. He's not going to be thrown in the perpetual cycle of incarceration because, number one, his family has, has money for a lawyer. Number two, the judge is not going to look at him like this is just the beginning of his life of crime. You know what I mean? Those second chances uh, with, with, with our white counterparts are, are always given. Um, there's, I don't believe in uh, rehabilitation for black people. I, I don't. That's just me. I, I really don't believe that there is a genuine um, a process in place to, to rehabilitate us. Um, once we enter that that system, it's it's more mm-hmm. geared towards us returning mm-hmm. or or keeping us there. I mean, these were goddamn crack ass judges, more quicker than the black people. They sentenced sentences to jail. They were the ones who need to be rehabilitated. Blacks, we, we this is war tactics and war strategies they're using against us. So I mean, I don't know if we can even expect for them to even supply any uh, redress or even attempt to um, give us reparations or try to fix any problems, us as black men or us as a a union, we might have to – it's going to be hard building from the ground up. It's it's Mm -hmm. definitely going to be hard building from the ground up, and we shouldn't even be put in that position seeing how this is, in fact, our, our continent and these people are actually foreign invaders. So we might have to figure out how to um, cleanse ourselves of this parasite and just uh, we'll never be safe with them. And I, I, I have to stress that a little bit, but we'll, we'll never be safe with them. And so we're going to have to disassemble the government, even though as extreme and radical as that sounds, we might have to disassemble the government, and we might, and that doesn't necessarily mean militarily. We just might have to create our create our own government, or our own international body politic, and uh, our own commerce system, or you know, pretty much what our ancestors been telling us the whole time. Mm-hmm. Pretty much what you've been stressing this whole time. We need our own economic base. Mm-hmm. Dr. John Henry Clark said, "We have no friends." Yeah, none. We have no friends. Really, not even with our, in our own community. Absolutely, uh, some of those, some of the people that's going to come at you the hardest are are going to have black faces. You know, are going to have black skin. They're going to be endowed in our community and our culture, and they're going to be the biggest um, threat to us. So that comes to be expected as history has showed us time and time again. Uh, you, in closing, you have anything you want to touch on? Man, we know that many corporations and many different businesses and different aspects of uh, from, I mean everything from Hollywood, um, air, air, uh, like you said, the airlines and just different places have different stakes in this business of crime, and um. The mainstream media does play a large role in it, and because the same people that owns the media is the same people that own these prison, own these private prisons. They say ninety um, percent of American Americans get their view of the, of the world around them through the um, media, and the media is only really owned by 
six corporations, and they say 232 media executives pretty much control 90% of America's view on the outside world. That's like 270 or 280 million people. And um, even in the um, like hip-hop and the music industry, like if you know BET and uh, MTV is actually owned by Viacom, and Viacom mm-hmm. is like the um, largest shareholder and uh, CCA, the uh, Corrections Corporation of America. So they like the largest stock owner. So, of course, they're going to um, try to generate or get their um, music company to generate or induce people into, like, a criminal culture so Absolutely. it could produce criminals. And mm-hmm. it's future revenue and so it's a perpetual system. So the system is is going to be ever going as long as we keep acting in compliance or complacent to it. So we got to attack the system full-fledged. And um, we're going to have to start doing sit-downs or something or some type of meetings or and try to figure out how to make that come about. Because if this keeps going on, they say by 20, uh, 2020, or 2025, there'll be 6 million. It's about to double. There'll be 6 million people in jail, and it's going to just keep being perpetual. More people will be locked up to a point. It'll be that spooky-ass conspiracy shit we've seeing on the, uh, everybody be locked up in concentration camps. <laughs> if we yeah. don't stop the perpetual system, it'll be, some, it'll be just like that. So it won't even, so we gotta, um, we gotta act. Yeah, without a doubt. And I mean, we've been criminalized in, in front of the world Every day. I mean, you just look at um, uh, the young brother, uh, Paul O'Neill, how he, this happened in, um, I believe it was Chicago. He was, I don't know if you've seen it yet, he was running from the cops. Yeah, they shot him like 15 times, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And they they high-fiving and, you know, congratulating each other on, on, on killing this guy. I'm killing this kid. You know what I mean. So it's it, we we definitely need to get a, a think tank together. Uh, more importantly, we need to understand white supremacy, and we need to take the appropriate steps to thought that um, you know these these uh these these traps that we're essentially being lowered into. So. That's that's basically all for this show. <laughs> so tell the people what's your name again, man. My name anybody know me as King Sully Shabazz, but my name is Amir Shajar and um like once again I'm initiate in the in the I'm a son of a leg and uh, you know, I'm just about the about this revolution, you know. About my people. Absolutely. So this has been another episode of Black Empowerment Radio. Until next week.